You are listening to the Cycling Podcast at the 2022 Vuelta España, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Today, we're on the Pico Hano. Hello, buenas tardes from La Vuelta España. My name is Daniel Freeber. I am the host of tonight's episode. And as you heard from our friend Rob Hatch, I am on the Pico Hano in Cantabria. And wouldn't you know, tonight I happen to be joined by Rob Hatch from Soye in Mallorca. He's the long-serving Eurosport cycling commentator, the multilingual voice of cycling, in fact, Accrington Cricket Club's first change medium pacer and number 11 batsman, my former flatmate and legal guardian of the sadly deceased bamboo palm tree, Marco Plantani. Rob, good evening. Good evening. What an introduction. What an introduction. What an intro. What an intro. And um, how are things looking in Soya in Mallorca? Because I can tell you here, as people probably saw on TV, I cannot see very much of the Cantabrian mountains. Um, an hour after the finish, we're still, I'm still immersed in, I suppose, what's up your way, Rob, you'd refer to as a pea super. A pea super. I, do you know what? I've got to disappoint you, actually. I, don't, I didn't want to take your beautiful introduction apart straight away, but I'm not actually in Soya today. I'm, in, I'm just down the road from you. I'm in Asturias, in rainy Asturias. Ah, you and, are. Um, ah. It's grey and it's pretty similar, and the weather forecast is pretty awful for the next few days. So whatever we've seen today, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a minute, is uh, coming again. Well, Rob, I am delighted to tell you that also joining us from Traverse City in Michigan, not Michigan, <laughs> Michigan. It's the current AG Tour Citroën Pro and veteran of four Vueltas a España Tour de Suisse stage winner, US National Road Race champion in 2017, Motown's answer to Tadej Pogacar <laughs> and BMC's <laughs> erstwhile friendly ghost, as we discovered yesterday. It's lucky Larry Warbass. Hey, guys. Well, Larry, I thought... I thought, hey, good evening. Um, Larry, um, we didn't see Jay Vine win the stage this afternoon because, well, <laughs> for reasons just discussed, linked to the lack of visibility. And um, I was wondering how I could somehow link this to the, the ghostly anecdote that we heard about you yesterday. Oh, that might be the difficult, phantom. but I don't know, yeah. <laughs> I would have rather been that kind of ghost than uh, the other kind that I was. So, uh, yeah, hopefully uh, I can convert my... Uh, my experience into a Vuelta stage win one day also. The Phantom J Vine. Well, what a stage it was, chaps. Um, there was talk, there has been talk over the last few hours of the Vuelta España really starting today. That's a little bit, I suppose, unfair on those who have well, thrived so far in this Vuelta España. There are also a lot of tired riders already in the peloton. Esteban Chavez told me this morning he was very tired after five stages. But it certainly did kick off. It certainly sparked into life with Remco Evenepoel taking the red jersey. And well, there were a lot of losers, I suppose. Or, or maybe we'll define them survivors, guys who will lick their wounds this evening and will be back to fight another day tomorrow. Not out of the race completely. We heard from, or we um, mentioned yesterday, Oscar Freire, local to this region, had said that on this climb today you would find out who would lose the Vuelta Espanol. There weren't too many riders who kissed goodbye to their hopes definitively, but there were a few, and um, yeah, there were certainly a lot who were given food for thought by Remco Evenepoel. But, chaps, 
tradition dictates that it's time, it's almost time for, well, Rod, Rob, this is when we traditionally cross to you. El resumen del día a contrarreloj. The stage summary time trial. Rob Hatch, it's not you on the start ramp. It's Lucky Larry again. Am I right, chaps? You, um, I let, you know, I left it to you to sort this out between you. It's Lucky Larry, isn't it? In Larry's a much better time trialist than I am. Uh. <laughs> donning, donning the super snood again. Rob Hatch, I've given you the role of official timekeeper, so I would like 90 seconds on the clock, and I'm going to count down three two, one. Off you go, Larry. Okay, today was stage six from Bilbao to Ascension al Pico Hano San Miguel de Aguayo. Super long name. 181.2 kilometers with uh, 3682 meters of climbing. Uh, yeah, we saw a pretty decent break out there today. It was 10 guys. Um, they went relatively quickly compared to some of the other days. Um, and most of them were caught, uh, yeah, I guess, Earlier, uh, Mark Padun was the last man standing. He attacked on the second to last climb and was solo until he was caught about uh, halfway up uh, the final climb, around six and a half K to go by uh, Jay Vine, the uh, eventual stage winner. So, yeah, I guess we saw a bit of action up until there. Um, you know, Ineos rode pretty hard for a while. There was a big crash in the descent that took out um, Norwegian Carl Fredrik Hagen on... Uh, Israel, so that was too bad. Um, he was their GC guy, and then yeah, eventually Quickstep took it over. Uh, Ala Philippe did some really big pulls, uh, yeah, going into the final climb, and eventually uh, yeah, Jay Vine attacked at the bottom. Um, the other guys waited until Remco went, and Enric Moss was the only guy able to stay with him. And yeah, finally those they they arrived in that order. Jay Vine uh, taking the stage win with about twenty seconds ahead of Remco. Evan Apol and uh, Enric Moss just behind that. Uh, then there was a big group of GC guys, about a minute 37 down, I believe. And you're um, out of time, Larry. You're out of time. I mean, that's everything you need to know anyway, so... Rob, usually we ask for... Well, we give the stage a wine rating. Today would be a bit of a glue vine uh, rating because it's pretty cold up here on the Pico uh, Hano. Um, what about a rating for Larry's... Um, time trial stage summary. I'd s- good, wasn't so it? were we what we 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 glasses glasses out of five glue vine glasses out of five. I'd give him a four there because he was getting to everything apart from the the new lead without just as the seconds were timing down and <laughs> a little anecdote. Um, my alarm was going off on my phone because I set the timer and that threw me off uh, threw me off guard. So I disappeared for a minute there. But I'm back now and back to give you four out of five. There you go, Larry. Okay, I'll take any it. Lo- any any loose ends that we ought to tie up um, any more that should be said about general classification um, any significant time losses maybe there, well there was there was one significant time loss for me fellas um, a really big one actually uh, Richard Carapaz down to almost three minutes now from, from Remco Evenepoel um, and the other one I guess to note probably expected if you've been reading the Spanish press Mikel Landa he's now at six minutes and 33 the rider who got the biggest ovation this morning at the Samames Stadium, yeah, Athletic Bilbao Stadium, where the stage started today in Bilbao, of course, the hero of the Basque Country. Chaps, I said, well, we talked about this being a phantom stage and J Vine being the phantom stage winner. There were a lot of riders. It was one of those days when the riders coming over the line looked traumatised and I would almost say haunted. Um, getting any kind of interviews was 
pretty difficult, understandably. Larry, I don't know how you feel when on a day like today, and you know, you get a few days like this every season, you come over the line, and of course, you always have a huge gallery of journalists waiting for you at the end of every race, <laughs> the end of every stage. Um, just explain or, or just tell us um, how you feel when someone asks you to, you know, stop and, and wax romantic over the six hours you've just spent suffering um, on the bike on a day like today. I mean, I think the you're worst... You're a very affable chap. Yeah, you're, always, you're always happy to give interviews. Yeah, I try, I try. But, uh, you know, I think the worst part on a day like today is... Uh, if you have to go back down the mountain and it's raining and cold and you're already freezing and you've just been, yeah, suffering on the bike for uh, however many hours. Um, so yeah, the worst is because like you're already cold, you know, you're going to have to descend. I don't know. Maybe if you had to, if that bar- bus parked at the bottom of the climb, it's like a 12 K descent in the pouring rain, um, when you're already freezing, uh, and then you, you know, have to stop at the top and then people ask you how it's going and, you know, I mean, that's fine. It's important to uh, give interviews. But uh, yeah, I could say that it's not always super welcome uh, after a stage like today. No, and there are a few riders whose, re- whose reaction reflected the fact that it's not super welcome. Um, but we did, or I did um, manage to speak to a couple of riders, or we will hear from a couple of riders, who were in the thick of the action today, chaps. Um, one of them a big winner, because he's a teammate of Remco Evenepoel, the new red jersey. And one of them, the guy who we expected, or probably a lot of us expected, certainly if Rudy Moller wasn't going to be in the red jersey, then he would be this evening, and that is Primoz Roglic. Here is Julian Alaphilippe and Primoz Roglic speaking after the finish this evening in Pico Hano. The rest of the Vuelta, but of course he had a great feeling. He have a, he have a lot of confidence and also a great support from uh, from everybody in the team. So we have a big motivation to help him as as long as possible. And I think what he did today it's, uh, it's good for him, it's good for the team, it's good for the morale, and we, we continue to see uh, day after day. We don't need the red, the red jersey to have confidence. I think he told us that he have a really good feeling, and yeah, so so today. Still a long way, huh? But uh, uh, yeah, today we lost a bit, but uh, hopefully we will gain a bit later on. First day, first important day in the mountains here in La Vuelta. What did you see from the other rivals? Uh, yeah, the day goes stronger, but I didn't uh, really need that proof. But uh, yeah, uh, how to say, it was quite untypical weather today for the Vuelta also. Uh, and uh, yeah, uh, everything fine and uh, going on uh, to the next stage. The Cycling Podcast at the 2022 Vuelta España, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Still guessing on fueling? Not sure what or when to eat and drink on rides that matter? Never again. Optimize your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insights, and personalized analytics. We're here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. Thank you very much to Super Sapiens, our title sponsors. Take a listen to the Super Sapiens podcast featuring Zylon Van Eck and Dr. David Lippmann talking about all manner of aspects of fueling strategy and how the Super Sapiens system can help improve performance and perhaps ward off some of the things that can hamper performance, such as cramp neurological or neuromuscular in nature which is to do with the signals from the brain to the muscles and I won't get too technical but this is why things like 
you'll hear pickle juice work. It's not because of the salt, it's because of the taste and it changes this neurological outflow to the body. There's a lot of cramp solutions. Pickle juice is one of them and there's a few cramping products based on this. Some people I know use mustard because it's a similar mechanism. It's, it's a similar set of receptors in the mouth. I know the USA 7s team at one point were using you know American mustard in a very patriotic way. So if you're prone to cramping, you may decide, I think I've got my nutrition correct and I'm going to be fine today and I've done enough training, but here's a backup plan. I'm going to carry this. Well, chaps, before the break, we heard from Julien Alaphilippe, teammate of the new red jersey, Remco Vainapol, and also Primoz Roglic sounding slightly not crestfallen but slightly beleaguered speaking to our colleague and friend Laura Meseguer of Eurosport and we're going to discuss in a minute whether we consider Primoz Roglic to be a survivor or a loser of today's stage I yesterday we had to skip unfortunately the daily rog uh, Diario Roglic because, well, simply because he didn't have time in the mix zone. This morning, um, outside the Samames Stadium, the Athletic Bilbao Stadium in Bilbao, he did take time to speak to me and some other reporters. And I tried, chaps, to nail him down on when this decision was made to come to the Vuelta a España because um, I was speaking to his agent fairly regularly over the last, or have been over the last few weeks, and he was sort of giving me running running commentary and updates on what what the decision was going to be and how likely it was that Roglic was going to come here to the Vuelta a España. So I pressed Rog on that today and as you can imagine, well, uh, it was it proved to be pretty difficult, the cross-examination process. Here he is. El Diario Roglic. When did you know that you were ready for the Vuelta? When did you sort of take that decision in your own head? <laughs> uh, yeah, really, uh, then the, the last moment, uh, just yeah, a few days. Two, two weekends ago, it was not last weekend, the weekend before, yeah? Yeah, it was just yeah, before, I don't know, when we announced it, uh, just before uh, coming here. Uh. Just because you felt so good in training? Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, it's, uh, I did everything to, to try to be ready. Uh, and yeah, at the end, yes, you need to take decisions. And yeah, with the decision that I took, yes, uh, I'm ready. He's not a man who tends to go into specifics, is he, Primoz Roglic? No, I mean, you were, you were in the cathedral, weren't you, in the home of uh, Basque football, or at least one half of Basque football, so I suppose you were going to get a football-style interview, non-committal, but, but that is Roglic, Roglic all the time, isn't it? And I, It's interesting that you mentioned earlier on about exactly how, whether you consider him to be a, a loser or a survivor from today. Um, he's, he's always a fighter and always a survivor, whatever happens, isn't he? I mean... To, to sort of begin that, um, I would say he's a survivor. I'm not sure what you guys think. As I'll give you guys a, a, a minute or so longer just to ponder that. And let's also hear from Remco Vaynerpool uh, this morning, again, outside the San Mames Stadium. No one went there. No one asked him about football because I know I've seen it myself with my own eyes before when people try to ask him about his past as a footballer and they try to it's the kind of tenuous link that I would usually dive in on but I didn't this morning and he doesn't generally like it but what he what he did sound this morning I think was confident here's what he said I hope to not lose any time again and uh, yeah it's always better to take a bit of time like Primus also says but uh, Obviously, it's, no, it's not going to be easy to take time on him. Remco, how good do you think your legs are based on the last few days? 
so far good, but uh, yeah, we also didn't really race yet. Uh, I mean, for the for the GC guys. Uh, but definitely, it has been two really fast days yesterday, like uh, uh, almost two hours full gas racing uh, for the breakaway. Um, I'm happy it was quite large road, so I could still uh, have a benefit of the slipstream. Um, but definitely, I think uh, it's stage six now. Um, with some hard races, with some hot, hot weather conditions, so uh, the legs will, will start to feel a bit sore for everybody. Um, but I just hope that the soreness is not too high for me today. <laughs> so, chaps, that was Remco this morning. Um, you guys were well. You were you were considering whether Primoz Roglic was indeed a loser today. So let's start with Roglic. Um, he was quite isolated on that final climb. Do you know what? I saw a lot of riders, Sivakov, um, Gino Maida, coming over the line and either congratulating him, thanking him or commiserating with him because he did have to do all of the legwork in that chasing group. Quite a big chasing group, which ended up coming down well behind Remco Venable. But loser or survivor, Primoz Roglic? Uh, okay, I'll go first. Yeah, I mean, for me, he's a survivor because... In the end, yeah, okay, he lost a decent amount of time to Remco, but Remco's still unproven. Enric Moss, uh, that that one's maybe a bit different. But, um, I mean, in the end, he pretty much was with all the big names and really big favorites uh, for the race. And it was, like, thanks to him that all of them didn't lose more time because uh, he did all the work alone, and it was, like, ten guys sitting on the wheel, which definitely can't be easy but it didn't look like he asked for any help and he just got on with it and kept riding so i don't know i definitely would say he's a survivor and i don't think he's like a loser yet no i was just gonna just add very quickly i was gonna put the whole jumbo visma camp in the survivors mode because i don't think they were as strong as perhaps we might have expected them to be as a team at the start today they were i thought primoz roglic was quite isolated early on you mentioned him having to do all the work and other riders talking about that and just to back up what, what Larry said in, in terms of facts there yeah he's he's fourth overall he's one minute one second down from Avenapool unproven over three weeks of course it's Avenapool's first big day in any sort of grand tour and Emrik Mass in front of him he's what Mass is 33 seconds ahead of Primoz Roglic at the minute and a reminder that Emrik Mass has never won a stage race in Europe well, he's certainly looking very good at this Vuelta España so far. Um, Chaps, when I when this morning looked at the, the profile and thought about this stage, the image that I had in my mind's eye when I thought about that final climb was of Ineos or Jumbo Visma setting a fast tempo and, well, the stage, the Vuelta, probably being roglified in the last kilometre or two. That did not happen at all. What we saw, well, we saw Bahrain ride quite aggressively um, on the penultimate climb, we saw Quick Step ride very aggressively, and then on the final climb, we saw Quick Step setting the tempo, but it was quite a tepid pace. So it looked that way. Fausto Masnada was on the front, and you could tell that it was quite tepid because Mark Padun's advantage was going out, and you had riders like Davide Villela going off the front, and and this was the prelude to the Simon Yates attack that really opened the main hostilities, wasn't it? And we'd seen, I think, on the approach to that. Um, before Masnada's tepid tempo, as you put it there. A reminder that Masnada had been up the road again, coming back from the break. He'd been the satellite rider that had been placed up the road by, by Quickstep. We also had Julien Lafilippe doing some fantastically strong work in the really short valley section before that final climb. And, and it looked like they'd sort of run out of numbers there. Then that attack from Yates came, and then that was sort of the, you know, the domino started to fall from there, didn't they? 
we'll talk more about the stage win at Jay Vine in the next part. But before we do move on, I just want to go through a few more of the general classification contenders, chaps. And um, I'm, I'm going to ask you to put them all in categories, if you can. Um, I, I'm, I'm presuming you're going to say that everyone who finished with Roglic, they're very much in the survivor category. Um, would you go along with that? I mean... But for guys like Carlos Rodriguez, Theo Gegenhardt, I'd maybe put them in the winners' category because, should uh, on paper they might have been expecting to work for, I'm talking personal ambitions here, work for Richard Carapaz, who you know I think we'll put in a very different category in a minute. They they finished up there, and Pavel Sivakov certainly in that survivors' category. There's Joao Almeida who's up there, and definitely a survivor because he'd been dropped several times. Well, well, this brings us to one of the definite winners of the day, Juan Ayuso, um, Joao Almeida's teammate. Now, if there was anyone, I mean, I, I, I talked about the sort of haunted expressions that the riders were wearing as they came over the finish line and after the stage. Uh, one rider who was smiling very broadly was uh, Juan Ayuso. I mean, he talked about how he'd not felt particularly good um, since the Vuelta had arrived in Spain. and he, he feared today's stage. And you know, there's been a bit of sort of speculation about how he and Almeida are going to ride together. There have been uh, one or two races or one or two incidents um, earlier in the season when it looked as though it wasn't perfect harmony between those two. And Ayuso was asked this evening about the hierarchy in the team, whether it's changed, and he talked about Almeida having more experience but he, he did also say now we've got two cards um, but Ayuso was mightily impressive impressive was he not Larry yeah I definitely think he was impressive but you know I guess for me again it's like I think it's his first grand tour right so in the end it's like he's pretty unproven so I mean it was a great ride by him but I, I wouldn't be you know putting too much weight on him for the GC yet because it's going to be hard to say I mean he's definitely capable uh, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, I would be extremely surprised if he could make it to the end, uh, you know, in the top five or top ten. Really? You're, you're, you're... Yeah, I don't know. I just think he's, I mean, he's young, you know. It's like, you never know what's going to happen. Uh, and then, yeah, I mean, he's been really good this year. But I also think, like, you know, he has some ups and downs. And uh, so, I don't know, for me, I don't think he's going to be... I definitely don't think he's going to be in the top five. Maybe he could be in the top ten. But, I mean, okay. And, look, we might see in two weeks, and I'm totally wrong with this. Uh, but, yeah, that's that's kind of my thought. Uh, to me, most surprising to me today was Enric Moss. I think he's, like, the biggest winner of the day. Because, like, again, yeah, we don't know if Evnipol might crack later on. You know, and, like, Enric Moss definitely has the highest... Um, I guess, caliber of Grand Tour um, rides, you know? So, um, for me, he, he definitely is the biggest winner. Uh, but, yeah, that's maybe the next thing we're going to talk about. But <laughs> Well, I mean, Mass, of course, looked really good, and he looked like the best of the rest for a long time in last year's Vuelta España. And, you know, he, he finished on the podium and rode a, a very solid Vuelta España last year. But, you know, over the course of the last few months, I think he gets a lot of flack, doesn't he, Rob, in the Spanish press and among Spanish kind of Twitterati, mainly for, mainly for his riding style and his lack of perceived lack of aggression. And this kind of feeds into, I mean, Larry, we spoke a little bit about Marc Soler yesterday and this sort of image that's that's followed him around and there is um, this kind of stench of doom this cloud of doom that follows Movistar around and and Enric Mass has well he's been lumped in with that and um, again not really through any fault of his own and when he's not attacked it's because he's not been able to attack 
So he's he's sort of standing coming into this. Um, his stock coming into this Vuelta Espana was was I think quite low, and he's surprised a few people. But you know, this is this is not the first time we've seen Enric Mas. You know, as the second or third best climber in Grand Tour stage, in big Grand Tour stages. No, he has a history of being up there, doesn't he? And certainly at this time of year, I think we've we've talked about it recently in in terms of you know certain people do well at certain times of year, and and that repeats itself season after season. I think. You guys were both talking about that on, on one of the podcasts the other day. Um, and Embrick Mas, he certainly wasn't among my favourites. And again, maybe I've been spending too much time on the sofa watching Netflix and things like that as well. Because those things, <laughs> they do seep into what you think about, about certain riders, don't they? And Max Soler is the best example yesterday. Even I could see him getting dropped on that first climb on Bivera. I'm thinking, here we go again. Here we go again. You do not want to be on Twitter if you're Max Soler or Embrick Mas. And... <laughs> Going back to, to what happened today, I think Emery Mass did what he had to do, didn't he? It was a superb ride. Again, there will have been people sitting in the in their um, you know on the sofas or wherever they're watching and thinking, "Ah, oh, Emery Mass, why isn't he coming through to take a turn? Why isn't he riding? Why isn't he riding?" I mean, Bremko Evenepoel was going up a train. The end, he, he was going up like a, a, an express train up that final climb. He was absolutely incredible, and you saw it even in that little final kick to the line. Mass, it wasn't as if he could just come off the wheel and sprint around and you know take the extra bonus seconds. Evenepoel was so so strong that even he put another say, further second on the line into Emrik Mass there. So Mass did a fantastic ride with with what he has, and I think maybe that's one thing that he's learning to do as well is just ride to his own strengths. I mean, we've sort of pushed the, the the vegetables and the salad leaves around our plate and we really need to get to the meat of today's stage. And the big issue um, is, obviously, Remco Avenable is the big story. And some will see today's ride, maybe we'll all come to see today's ride one day as pivotal in the story of Remco Avenable, the day when the doubts were were obliterated, really, about his credentials as a Grand Tour rider. I mean, I've had them. Um, do you think today could potentially be that significant, Larry, that, um, you know, he, he outclimbed the the dominant rider of the Vuelta a España, the recent history of the Vuelta a España, and uh, it was a huge marker to lay down, wasn't it, today? Yeah, but again, I still think the thing with Remco is, you know, we're, what, uh, it's the sixth stage, so... In the end, like we're still really early in the race, uh, and there was already one rest day. So, I mean, I think where it's really going to come down to is like the second or third week, uh, you know, because like obviously we know that he's insane. You know, he's so strong at San Sebastian. He just did about a zillion watts a kilo and smashed everyone, uh, and then soloed from so far away. So, you know, I think the thing is, doing a day like this is totally unsurprising for me, at least, uh, to see Remco do that. And, I mean. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if he does really well in the general in the end as well now. But, like, uh, you know, it's like in the Giro a couple of years ago, he was still really good at the beginning, if I recall correctly. And it wasn't until a little later on that he faded. So, um, you know, he has a pedigree in one-week stage races. And I think, uh, you know, we'll see what happens once we get beyond, you know, 12 days, things like that. That's at least my two cents. But Larry, just talk a, a little bit about we're trying to follow a guy who, I mean, his climbing style is based on sort of draining the oxygen from the lungs of, of everyone else. In the, but he, he sort of asphyxiates people with the, um, it's, you know, you, you don't know uh, until you're on his wheel. But I, I guess his sort of wattage is, is pretty consistent. 
and as I say, he just sort of sucks the life force out out of those who are following him. I mean, to look at his facial expression and even his pedaling action today, you wouldn't even have known that he had accelerated. But it was only um, watching the riders sort of peel off his wheel and melt off his wheel um, that you realised <laughs> that he, he had to up the tempo. Yeah, I think that's one of the things with him is, you know, he has a, a way more like seated... Um, style of climbing you know unlike some of these other guys who are kind of like attackers and things like that um but i think that also is what makes him so good is he's like compact so okay you know i guess on a steep climb it doesn't make a huge difference but uh you know if you're on a flatter climb i mean he's so much more it's like we were talking about yesterday but he's so much more aerodynamic than the other guys that, uh, you know, I think even the guys on his wheel, they're not getting very much draft, um, which still does make a difference on a climb like this. You know, he's probably going, I don't know, 25K an hour or something. So uh, that still makes a huge difference uh, being as like, compact as he is. And I think, like, yeah, his seated pedaling style just really only benefits him. And, you know, a guy like Moss, he's probably not even getting that much draft sitting on him. So, uh, so yeah, I think uh, that really plays into his favor. Rob, is he going to win the Vuelta? Um... You know I love to push my vegetables onto the side of the plate, as you were saying before, and the salad. Uh, I always do that anyway, and I'm going to do that again. I think there are still too many unknowns, aren't there? Um, the team is one. I think you've mentioned this several times already this week, Daniel, that this is the first real occasion that the team has sent no sprinter, an entire team around somebody. And there's all the pressure as well. And, and he's been pretty good at dealing with that, hasn't he? I, you mentioned he's come through football. He plays the sort of boring interview role very well, doesn't he? He can sort of bat that off and bat that back very well. But 1978 was the last Belgian Grand Tour winner. And anybody who's been lucky enough to go to Belgium and see wow. what they think about cycling, certainly in Flanders, where Evenepoel comes from, um, everybody still talks about Jan de Munk the last Belgian Grand Tour winner. And that place is the Pink Panther. The Pink Panther. Um, and that place is going to go absolutely crazy if we get towards that third and final week, as you were saying, Larry, and he's still right up there. Um, I think the time trial is very good for him, isn't it? And if he's still got a nice lead by then, I think already, night, even very early, we're going to be looking at Asturias and the, the weekend stages to see what he's doing there because he's got two big mountain days, then the time trial, and after that, it's another sort of Grand Tour cliche, but it's a different type of welter. The climate changes, we have a big transfer, and, and I suppose the race will take the pattern then, because if he does survive these next couple of days, and or even adds to his lead, and then does it again in the time trial, then the team's really going to be tested, isn't it? Because he'll have a nice big lead, and it'll be a completely different welter with the team being put under pressure. Shoot, uh, shoot that out of the cycling podcast, team car, the back of the pack, please. That's Seb PK, the voice of Radio Tour, and this is Lionel here to tell you that this episode is sponsored by Stitch Fix, which is a service that I've been using for a few years now. It takes all of the stress out of clothes shopping. Now, I know a lot of people enjoy going shopping for clothes, but it's just not something for me. I prefer the way that Stitch Fix works, and so I get a few deliveries throughout the year, usually as the seasons are changing, when I want to refresh my wardrobe, and well, I've recently placed an order with Stitch Fix and I'm waiting for the box to arrive any day now. The way it works is that you fill out a style quiz, selecting items and outfits that appeal to you, and then hand over the sense of responsibility to your style expert who will put together a box of five items 
Now this time I got an email with some suggested items, a couple of which I like the look of, so I know that they'll be in my box, but the other three items will be a complete surprise. And then when the box arrives, I will try everything on, I'll decide what I want to keep, and you only pay for what you keep, of course. You send everything back very easily in the prepaid envelope. You pay just £10 each time you order something from Stitch Fix, and then that £10 is credited towards the items that you keep. And if you do keep all five items, you get 20% off. There's no subscription required, so you can get a delivery as and when you'd like one. Deliveries and returns are easy and free. Go to stitchfix.co.uk slash cycling. Now, I'm looking forward to seeing what I get in the box. And next time we talk about Stitch Fix on the podcast, I will reveal all. Uh, Well, I won't reveal all, obviously. I will tell you what clothes I got in the box. Get started today at stitchfix.co.uk slash cycling and get 25% off when you keep all five items. That's stitchfix.co.uk slash cycling and 20% off if you keep all five of the clothing items in your box. El ritmo de la vuelta. The rhythm of the vuelta. This is El Ritmo de la Vuelta, our daily trip to the Vuelta's musical Hall of Shame, revisiting the race's official songs and the races to which they provided the soundtrack. Today, chaps, we're going back to 1989. The official song is, or was, Mas y Mas by La Unión, the new wave quartet from Madrid that became one of Spain's biggest bands with 15 number one hits, the most famous of which, and this is why I chose them today, was probably Lobo Hombre in Paris, The Wolfman in Paris. Inspired by a 1940s novel of the same name. That year's Vuelta began in Coruña, in the far northwest of Spain, on April the 24th. The hot favourite was the reigning Tour de France champion Perico Delgado, riding for Reynolds, the team that later became Benesto, Castepan, oh. nowadays Movistar. That Vuelta was also the first for the Spanish team that would become their great rivals over the next decade and a half, Onfe. And remarkably, it was already a fifth Vuelta start for Delgado's teammate Miguel Indorain, whose best previous finish had been 84th in 1985. In the spring of 89, Indorain had enjoyed a major breakthrough, winning Paris in the Criterium International. He was also riding well snugly inside the top 10 on GC when he crashed on stage 16 to the Lagos de Covadonga and had to abandon with a broken wrist. Incidentally, Covadonga, you know this, Rob, uh, Covadonga was also where Indorain would pull out of his last Vuelta a España in 1996, uh, five tours to France later. That was the last time he ever rode a bike as a professional, um, if I'm not mistaken. Big Mig, of course, never did manage to win a Vuelta, whereas 1989 turned out to be Delgado's second victory in his home Grand Tour. The race was memorable mainly for Perico's efforts to repel an armada of swashbuckling Colombians in the mountains. Oscar de Jesus Vargas, uh, Pedro Morales, Martin Farfán, Gerardo Moncada, Alberto Camargo, and in particular Fabio Parra, the Kelme team. Final mountain stage to the Puerto de Navacerada in particular went down in the annals of the Vuelta as Parra attacked repeatedly, 
became the Mayot Amarillo Virtual, but finally came 35 seconds short, dislodging Delgado, who duly took victory the following day. Notable mention that year, she also go to Malcolm Elliott, winner of two stages and the points competition. Masi Mas, Rob, you're a bit of an aficionado of Spanish music. Familiar with those boys? Not particularly. I'm familiar with the song, The Love Hombre in Paris. Um, bizarrely, I've actually heard that song played live in a venue where we've had one of the cycling podcast events. It was covered by a Spanish group, a real uh, one of the, my favourite Spanish groups down in, in the Clapham Grand in London a few years ago. We were all singing it, a couple of thousand of people. And then, you know, just a few months later, the cycling podcast was playing there. So that's a, a, a tremendous, uh, as you say, ritmo de la vuelta tangent to go off on. Um, 1980 Spanish music, though, is, is absolutely brilliant. La Movida in Madrid. And you have to remember, actually, it was a, it was a really interesting la time Movida's for Spain. La Movida's been a rival podcast. Let's, let's yeah. not, well, let's La Movida... No, I, <laughs> la Movida... Is the music scene, the music scene of the 1980s. You have to remember, Spain was coming out of dictatorship then and democracy was only like 10, 15 years old. We're getting on for that and, and there was a fantastic sort of atmosphere of liberation across Spain culturally anyway. So really interesting times for Spanish music. Well, I refer to them as a new wave quartet. One could say that Jay Vine represents a new wave in professional cycling because, of course, famously, he was discovered by virtue of, thanks to the, Rob, how should I describe it? Is it an application? Is it software? Is it? Um, we talked yesterday about computer games, didn't we? We talked yesterday about FIFA. <laughs> FIFA did. and um, Victor... L- it's a platform, isn't yes. it? Yes. Victor Longelotti, who, uh, chaps, um, forgive me, I've forgotten, is he still in the King of the Mountains jersey? I wasn't at the podium ceremony. He is. Uh, he is. We heard about his addiction to FIFA. Do you know what, chaps? I'm really going off on another tangent now. I heard that another a, a Spanish colleague this morning told me that another Burgos Biache rider, Angel Madrazo, who is from Cantabria, where we are today, he developed a bit of a FIFA addiction a f- couple of years ago. And this was the fault of La Vuelta a España because he won, I think he won a PlayStation. Yes. He did. Oh, no, what happened was... No, his wife said she was going to buy him. Uh, no, no, okay. it was... Something okay. like that? I don't so know. So the story was that <laughs> his... Uh, you know, he always wanted a PlayStation, but his girlfriend said, I think it was too expensive or something, so he wasn't allowed to buy a PlayStation. So he wins the stage, and that was what he had said in his interview. So the next day, he shows up to the sign-in, and the race gifted him a PlayStation. So that was pretty cool, actually. Uh, anyway, anyway, back to about 15 minutes ago, we mentioned Jay Vine. <laughs> Larry, Jay Vine, is he, has he been a source of some kind of mystique in the peloton as well because of this origin story that he has? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think, was it last year that he turned pro, uh, I believe, with Alpecin? Um I'm not 100% sure, but I think it was last year. And, uh, you know, he, I think he really kind of like came to the forefront um, when he was second overall in the Tour of Turkey, because at least for me, that was when I recognized, you know, his name, um, just because I saw this guy on Alpecin who was Australian, 
and he was second in Tour of Turkey, and I was like, who, who the hell's this guy? And uh, so then I looked him up, and I saw he won this Zwift Academy, and um, so yeah, for me, that wasn't like a huge surprise, because, I mean, you know, there's one thing you can tell on Zwift, and that's if someone has a huge engine. So, uh, so yeah, you know, I think, um, you know, I know they're, they're, they had been relatively successful at identifying talents uh, on the women's side. Um, because, yeah, they had brought a few people over to the Canyon SRAM team, I believe. And, uh, yeah, this was, I think he was maybe the first guy on the men's side to come over. So, um, you know, last year in the Vuelta, he had some good rides. He was third on the stage, and that was after he, like, crashed into his own team car. So, um, you know, I think the thing is, he probably didn't do himself any favors there. Um, you know, I think already people you know, like to, uh, I don't know, uh, I don't know, I guess, you know, talk about things like, you know, a guy who comes pro on Zwift, uh, you know, can he ride a bike? But, uh, you know, I think definitely today he would have silenced a lot of uh, those uh, haters um, with that ride, and that was pretty cool to see. There were always a few sort of smirks, weren't there, last year, whenever he did have problems, like, as you said, the, the occasion when he did collide with the team car. I'm not sure how representative that was of his, his actual ability um, as a bike handler. I, I, I heard he came from mountain biking yes. as well, actually, before before he was into, into Zwift, uh, or before, I, I should say, he took advantage of you know that that platform and, and managed to, to to win the competition obviously so he, he was obviously a, 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 a let's say a real world biker before that if yeah. he'd been riding his mountain bike and and the engine that you just alluded to as well there yeah so i mean i don't know it was pretty cool to see but i can't say i'm at all surprised that he won a stage because uh you know i follow him on strava and you can see on some of his rides you know he posts most of his power files and things like that and you know, I'm pretty sure he has the KOM on Roca Corba in Girona, which uh, is a climb that I think all the pros who live there um, test themselves on. So that's a pretty huge um, thing. Even if it's, you know, just in training, it definitely shows something to his strength. So uh, I think it was about just a matter of time before he could sort of show that in a big race. Well, chaps, the, the sort of dichotomy between real-world cycling and Zwift cycling or e-cycling, online cycling, and what should we call it, online and indoor cycling, computer game cycling, um, it, that brings us... That bring, I'm going to get in trouble on it again for this. Yeah. Um, that brings us to today's Encuentro del Día. I don't really need to tell Rob Hatch to take it away because he's here with us this evening. However, we will go to pre-recorded Rob Hatch. El Encuentro del Día. The meeting of the day. Chaps, today's Encuentro del Día is not with a rider. It's with a director sportif. It's with Trek Segafredo's director sportif, the former rider, Steven de Jong, Former winner of the E3, Harold Becker and Kuna, Brussels Kuna. I think he won Kuna twice, actually. Um, now, Stephen has been a direct sportive for over a decade now. And, well, we just talked about Strava. We talked about Zwift. But Stephen's rides on Zwift, sorry, on Strava, um, have come to my attention over the years. And a lot of people's attention as well. Because um, I see him at races, speak to him at races, and somehow... He finds time in the day to get on his bike and go out, often for one hour, two hours, three hours, um, often at five o'clock in the morning when he's working at races like this one, the Vuelta a España. This year, 
He's ridden 11,498 kilometres. He's climbed 84,082 vertical metres. This morning I looked, he knocked out 52 kilometres in an hour and 20 minutes. Um, And he is the founder of something that at Trek they refer to as, I think he's the founder and only member of something that they at Trek Segafredo refer to as the Dawn Patrol. This morning in Bilbao, I asked Stephen de Jong about the Dawn Patrol. Here he is. Uh, Stephen de Jong, Trek Segafredo director sportif and the inventor of something I think you and the team refer to as Dawn Patrol. Explain to me what that is. Uh, I think the the creator or the founder is uh, Sean Yates actually. So uh, we went out together when I was working with Sky and uh, yeah, then we went for the Dawn Patrol rides. So these are bike rides every day pretty much on Grand Tours in particular well in every race I suppose that you do um, and I have noticed it purely by following you on Strava you're out well before dawn before the crack of dawn every day um, five half five in the morning yeah yeah, yeah. so uh, around six o'clock normally I leave and uh, it's ma- mostly a ride of around 50 kilometers just what is available around uh, the the hotel actually so and now yeah with with strava and with the heat maps you yeah you start to recognize the places where you've been and so it's actually it's getting nicer and nicer <laughs> why steven most director sportifs or former riders they quit cycling and then they take up running because that's something you can do in half an hour 40 minutes just throw on a pair of running running shoes and off you go but why have you maintained this habit of riding your bike yeah, I still love the bike, that's for sure. And it's the only period of the day where you have some time frame for yourself and yeah, so nothing to worry about. Uh, and I, I really need that. And it gives me a lot of energy back. So uh, the rest of the day, mostly you sit in the car or you sit on the bus. And yeah, sitting is not my favorite hobby. So uh, yeah, it, it, it gives me a lot, this, this one and a half hour on the bike in the morning. And I guess now it's a real habit. So when the alarm goes, while most yeah, goes of us... no alarm. There's no alarm. There's no, no alarms involved. No, no. So normally I wake up between 5.15 and 5.30, 5.40. And then, yeah, I, I take my bike around 6 and I leave. But there's no alarms involved, no. Having gone to bed at what time? It depends. Uh, here it's a little bit later, but mm, yeah. I aim to be in bed before 12, around 11, uh, 11, 15, but yeah, sometimes it's hard with late dinners. I'm sure the team doctor has told you that's not enough sleep. Uh, five and a half hours can do, no? <laughs> I know there have been world leaders and presidents that have famously only got four hours, five hours sleep, but most of us need six or seven. Yeah, well, I, I never sleep longer than, than six hours, so that's something I, that's already, since I was a rider, I, yeah. I, I don't sleep long, so I have no talent for sleeping long, that's for sure. And Stephen, you mentioned Sean Yates, but nowadays are you mostly going out on your own, or do you find takers to go with you even at 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock? Uh, no, at 6 o'clock here, I will, yeah, here and in the tour, I always went, uh, went alone. And uh, training camp, sometimes uh, uh, Glenn, he joins me, Glenn Laven. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, uh, yeah. There's no company, not a lot of company, no. And 
a lot of the time you're going out in the dark yeah yeah yeah. well, well actually now it's the period where where it's dark again in holland was still quite light uh in denmark to start there was actually no night <laughs> because when i got up it was already light but uh, yeah now i will use uh the lights again and from yeah six six forty more or less uh, it's pretty light again but it will get darker when we go south I guess over the years you've been in this for a few years now you've had some adventures you probably had some nervous moments have you where you thought you might be lost and you might not get back in time for the start or tell me about some of those no actually actually not because uh, with the Wahoo I will always put a route in so I know exactly where I are where I am and uh, yeah I got some reserve equipment with me but actually in the in the Tour de France I only had one flat tire and that was easily fixed and now the good thing is, is when you see the wildlife out there so uh, like the, the animals like this morning uh, a small fox was running uh, running in front of me and uh, yeah you see you see a lot of wildlife that's that's the nice thing and, and the beautiful sunrises and beautiful skies yes it can be quite a spiritual experience then at that time of the morning well i'm not that spiritual but it gives me definitely a very good feeling so uh yeah and steven you had this um well unfortunate incident in 2018 it wasn't on a race was it but you kind of went missing on a bike ride and you was located partly thanks to i think it was strava you've recovered from that and it took you a while i know but um are you not slightly or are people around you not slightly anxious about these dawn rides for that reason well, uh, for sure they are, and I think especially my wife was in the beginning, but uh, actually in the dark, when you ride with your lights on, you're, you're much more visible than, than, than you are in the day. And I have the feeling that in the daylight, when there's much more traffic on the road and much more car drivers using their mobiles, not paying attention, it's actually more dangerous. So yeah, in the morning at six, you, you don't find a lot of a lot of cars on your ride. Plus, you're really visible because yeah, I've got the flashing light from uh, from Bondrago, who's really bright in the back, and then the front light. And yeah, actually, it gives me a better feeling when it's dark with the light on on the bike than than during daytime, during rush hour. Yeah. And Stephen, just lastly, the the riders, um, what do they think of it? I mean, I, I guess on some level. They might be quite inspired by it because they see what time you get up and I, they're probably in awe of it as, as well as I am. Well, some of them, they, they say I'm crazy and yeah, maybe that's true, but yeah, they also have respect for it because yeah, you do it day in, day out, no matter the weather or whatsoever. And yeah, uh, I think they like it that I do it. and in one way it also keep me a little bit connected because yeah like this morning it was full rain when i was riding the first part and if they will have rain today you know you you, you know what it is to ride in the rain the white lines on the road and slippery and yeah i know it's 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 good to not forget how how hard the sport is and you're not slowing down yet um based on strava anyway you're still going at a pretty good lick yeah i don't like to go to go slow when i when i when i go out i always try to to push to push the legs a bit yeah science in sport is supporting the cycling podcast at the 2022 vuelta españa science in sport fueled by science
Thank you very much to Science in Sport who have been supporting us for a long time now and they offer all of our listeners 25% off at scienceinsport.com with the discount code SISCP25. They have everything you need to fuel up before, during and after your ride. La etapa de mañana, la cena de ayer. Tomorrow's stage, yesterday's food. Well, chaps, last night we were in Bilbao, and as mentioned on yesterday's podcast, we had the fiesta de verano, the, the summer summer party, summer festival in, that going on in Bilbao this week, and it was pretty raucous. Didn't quite get involved in the full Mavida, unfortunately, Rob. We didn't really locate it last night. We were staying near the San Mames Stadium, and um, we needed to venture a little further towards the Casco Viejo, I think, but um, by all accounts, it was pretty raucous. I saw plenty of people actually out on my run this morning, at about 8 o'clock this morning, there were, there were still people idling shambling home um with the blue and white neckties but rob you could probably enlighten us on this um the the fiesta so every city in spain every town and pretty much um has some kind of summer festival summer summer fiestas don't they and in a lot of places the they're they're accompanied by or they're celebrated with uh, these these neckties Uh, am i right in thinking that that the necktie seems to be something that's more um i'd say traditional of of yeah you get it in san fermin in navarra you get the red neckties And, and we actually see it at the tour de france every year don't we because the Tour de France uh, always it happens. Always falls yeah, it during, does. Yeah, the so you, you get the traditional Movi Star red red neckties on the podium thing at the start of the day because they're from Pamplona, that city. As are two other teams actually riding. Uh, well, one of the team is riding the Welter, uh, Kem Farmer, and another team in the Pro Peloton, Cajarural. Um, they're all from the, the same big city, really, just uh, in and around Pamplona, capital of Navarra. But fiestas, really typical across the whole of Spain, wherever you go, all the way down from the Canary Islands and then El Hierro, which is a couple of thousand kilometers from here, all the way up towards Galicia, where you are today, up in, in Cantabria, which is one of the smaller regions in terms of population but every single little town and village will have its fiesta and you said you saw people coming out i don't know what time you're out running this morning but they might have been off to an after daniel they, they have what they call afters where but you know people finish these fiestas that tend to go on the music plays until four five six o'clock in the morning and then they just go and find somewhere else open and, and carry on really to lunchtime Stephen de young had done 60 kilometers by that point um anyway Chaps, the, the dinner last night uh, it was it was nothing to it was nothing too significant. I was out with some colleagues, Andy Hood, Gregor Brown, um, Chris Marshall Bell, and well, they did order an, an enormous sea bass, which in, I didn't partake in. Um, enormous and very expensive sea bass. Um, but anyway, I'm, I'm hoping that things are going to look up um, from a culinary point of view. Today we're in Cantabria, so I've, I have high hopes. But I'll report back tomorrow. Rob, what do we have tomorrow in the Vuelta a España? 
Well, tomorrow's stage seven. We leave Camargo and go to Sistierna. We leave Cantabria and go to Castilla León. So another day, another region. It's a bit of a whistle-stop tour, isn't it, so far, of both the regions in the Netherlands and down here in Spain. It's a slightly easier day, we think, before two more days in the mountains when they get to Asturias at the weekend. There's a climb halfway through the 190-kilometre stage. It's a big climb. San Glorio, it's called. 22. Yep, 22 kilometres long. I think it's probably first category more to do with the length rather than the gradient. I think we'll put that straight out there. 22 kilometres long. It tops out, though, with around 65 kilometres to go. And, and it's a little bit of a strange-looking profile, isn't it, actually? It sort of could be anything tomorrow. It screams breakaway because of what we've had today and what we're going to have at the weekend. But there's around 3,000 metres of climbing over the 190 kilometres. And again, the little sort of seed of doubt is sown in there because we've got 65Ks to go after the climb. No huge descent from it, more like a bit of a sort of false flat downhill, finishing on a plateau. So I think a big fight for the breakaway. We'll see who gets there, what gap they get, and then, I don't know, if any of the sprinters' teams can bring it back in the end. But I think it's a bit of a I tough ask if you've got a very, very big group up the road. I think we have to defer to the phantom of Traverse City for this one because I've got no idea what <laughs> what what kind of stage we're going to go. Apparently, Rob, the Puerto de San Gloria used to be used by... It was the access route for Roman legions um, invading Cantabria once upon a time. But who's going to invade and uh, over... Who's going to pile over the Puerto de San Gloria towards a stage win tomorrow, Larry? What, 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 what have we got in store? I would have to say it's another day for Sam Bennett. So, you know, I think, um, yeah, I don't know. You look, oh, yeah, but it's like, surely, okay, average, I'm looking right now, is 5.8% for 19 kilometers. But then you have so far to go. So the thing is, is like, if they don't let the breakaway get a huge gap um, before that, they hold them pretty close to the bottom of the climb, then they just ride easy up the climb, then they go hard after the climb. Uh, You know, I just, I don't think they're going to leave another chance go uh, for a stage win. I think, you know, maybe if their GC guys were, like, up there with Remco today, then, you know, Bora wouldn't want to ride. But I think, you know, if they get Sam to the line, which I think he's riding pretty strong, uh, I think, you know, he's probably going to win another stage. So I'm guessing a, that's what's going to happen. But Is this not an ideal opportunity for Trek um, to put... Bora and everyone else under the pump to get King Kenny Ellisond, who's clearly flying at the moment. I know he's a good friend of yours, Larry. Yeah. Um, put him on the front, set a very high tempo, and start spitting sprinters out of the back, including possibly Sam Bennett. I mean, Mads Pedersen, uh, as, as well as Sam Bennett, seems to be riding. Mads Pedersen is a stronger yeah. climber, and he's climbing very, very well at the moment. I mean, that's definitely a scenario I could see, but I just think, like, you know, 65k is a long way to go if it's just Trek, you know, if maybe say like Alpacin is with, uh, you know, if Merli, is it Merliers here? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if he's with Sam Bennett, you know, it's like maybe Alpacin is going to ride to get them back. You know, I don't think Trek's going to work before that climb. So I just think like, uh, yeah, I don't know. I just think it's all going to come back together. I think it's too long after that climb, um, to really see a huge, uh, difference but yeah i mean it's possible i uh, never say never but i think it's going to be field i sprint. think that steven de jong will be meditating on how to guillotine the rest of the sprinters when he's on his ride tomorrow morning at 4 30 in the morning that's what i yeah. think um chaps any other business no i don't think so no how's the training coming larry 
Yeah, it's decent. Um, you know, it's a bit boring because I'm like just training by myself most of the time here. Uh, oh, I don't really have any training partners left here at the moment who aren't working or things like that. So, uh, yeah, just trying to get some hours in and uh, yeah, enjoy some time with my family. So not not too crazy serious training yet. How, how was the fudge pie or whatever it was? Well, you, you know, know really sadly it was closed. It, it was closed oh, yesterday, God. the restaurant. So, no. uh yeah, I don't know. Maybe like Vincent called them up and told them uh, to shut down, so uh, I couldn't eat my. Uh, after listening to the cycling podcast. Exactly. Yeah. 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 No. So we're gonna go tomorrow, hopefully. So have to wait for that uh, delicious dessert. And Rob, I imagine that in Gijon this evening, well, you you might take the opportunity to enjoy a nice, I don't know, cachopo. Um, you you know very well I'm not a catch-up or man, Daniel. But um, I'll, I'll certainly maybe be looking for a nice cidreria, get some cider. Uh, the company meat dishes that come with it. And I'm going on my holidays tomorrow, actually. This is the first part of my holidays. I'm going on my holidays to the UK tomorrow. So um, I'll be looking forward to seeing some family for the first time in a long time. But I do believe you'll be back on the second podcast before the end of the welter. Chaps... <coughs> That concludes the entertainment on a day that belonged very much to Remco available. I'm going to say thank you to both of you, and we will reconvene uh, at different points. I'm not sure who we've got tomorrow. That will be announced at some point in the next few hours. But um, look forward to speaking to you both later in La Vuelta España. Hasta luego. Sounds great. Gracias. Have a good one. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freeb, and Lionel Burns.